Hello and welcome to episode number 40 of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. Um, so this week is the final part of the conversation with Bob Olson, who was the mastering engineer at Motown Records, and I really hope that you've enjoyed this. Um, and uh, yeah, I appreciate that it's a, a three-parter because the conversation just went on that long. And before we dive in, I'd just like to remind you that if you'd like to support the podcast by buying one of the wonderful enamel mugs that I have, you can do that at allyouneedisdrums.com and there is a link to the shop. Um, I only have a, a handful left, so I would uh, I would do it sooner rather than later. Um, okay, and that's that. I would Let's just dive straight into the, to the remainder of this conversation. Here we go, Bob Olson. I always ask, um, you know, you've had a, a really, you know, a, a, like a long and prolific career in the industry. What would you, if you could sort of pin down uh, any sort of words of wisdom uh, about sustaining a long career or, uh, you know, words that you might give to yourself back, in, you know, <laughs> back when you're a teenager, what would you offer? Uh, well, you can't start young enough. I mean, you're, you're at it because you, you basically want to be young enough, but you're not threatening to anybody. Mm -hmm. And then you get to work with the top people. And I think, well, I remember we, after I moved to San Francisco, we did a recording academy meeting and we had a whole bunch of engineers with careers comparable to mine at that point. I mean, we're talking 1972, 73, but you know, people who'd been all over the charts. And we're in a green room conversation. And I just for the sure hell of it, I asked, how old were you when you had your first hit? Every person in the room had worked on their first record, hit record before they were 21. Wow. Wow. That's mad. That really is mad. I mean, you know, maybe as an assistant or whatever, but they had. Yeah, it makes that, me feel old all of a sudden. <laughs> that, that thing. And it, you know, I think you can't start young enough encourage younger people and you want to have younger people around you which I haven't had lately <laughs> and uh, and certainly I mean the lesson of Motown is don't go in with preconceived motion, notions of how anything should be done because we didn't have any I mean, we had one of the first headphone systems in the world and they tried it and they didn't like it. <laughs> well, there you go. That's strange. And so we wound up, we built these three isolation. The reason they built it was they'd done three isolation rooms so we could separate some things. And we put the organ in one of them and we had the vibraphone marimba were in one and i'm not sure what the middle one was intended for but but anyway they they built this binaural system with two microphones overhead in each room and that could feed the headphones and alternatively we could send them a mix from the control room and they tried it both ways and the performances weren't as good. So they left the door to the isolation room open and the drummers wound up. I mean, after Benny Benjamin passed, the only way they could get a groove was two drummers and a tambourine. <laughs> so that was the magic formula. 
that brought it back. And the drummers needed the headphones in order to hear the bass. But the, the bass and the guitars were all coming out of the one speaker. And it was a monitor speaker. It was not, not a instrument amp. And so the musicians were actually hearing what they sounded like going direct. And that affected the touch of their fingers. And that's a whole bunch of the sound. Mm. And I demonstrated that to Babbitt. He asked me, what the hell did you guys do to get that bass sound? I've never gotten that bass sound again. And in his case, we didn't do anything. <laughs> so I demonstrated not doing anything, but with a, a transformer direct in my monitors, my my mastering monitors, and he played his precision basing. By God, that's it! <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> That was a great conversation, but it also, I mean, that that lesson that the ear to finger feedback loop is critical and very underappreciated. Mm. Like if you have a guitar player and they discovered in, here in Nashville, they did this too. If you have a guitar player, you want the amp up in the player's ears. Yeah. That make well, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Not down on the floor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't. I mean, down by their knees is not gonna. I mean, yeah. you could tip it back, which some of them were set up to do, but but that's you know that that was a a major lesson that I had from Motown. The, the studio acoustics with the walls that reflect a flat response meant that I could record vocals in the old Hitsville studio five feet back from the singer with a Neumann KM86 and it didn't lose presence. Wow. Wow. So, you know, you can record drums in a living room pretty well, but vocals you actually need a studio for. You <laughs> don't get that. <laughs> in fact, you need a good studio for <laughs> <laughs> old school studio and what's going on was a real lesson because the uh i don't know i did an interview for a magazine a little while ago about it i don't know if you have you caught that or no i haven't do you, do you know i have a link it was i have a link to it on a facebook page oh okay i'll look it up I can't think of the guy's name now, but he's apparently well known in England. Okay. I'll, um, it wasn't it, uh, Warren was, Hewitt, was it? No. No. Okay. I'll, I'll look it up. Uh, well, hell, I can look it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll dig it up. Uh, anyway, the lesson of what's going on is that Marvin recorded the song. Well, he had been given the song for a group called The Originals. Okay. Because with Stevie and Marvin, both of them, there was studio time available because Hollandozer Holland had left. But Barry wanted them to prove they could produce something before he was going to let them produce themselves. And so Marvin was given this group called the Originals, and Stevie was given the Spinners. This was before, before he gave them the record that gave them the deal at Atlantic. <laughs> <laughs> and although that vocal session was the high point of my career it's a shame i mean the gc cameron the lead singer sang the lead vocal in one take wow stevie and sarita wright had written a song the three of us are sitting 
in the control room along with the other group members and our jaws are on the floor. I mean, it was something I will never forget as long as I live. It, the look on their faces, I mean, in, in three minutes, we had learned, number one, it was a hit record. And number two, Stevie was about to have a career as a record producer. Wow. So that's the, it's a shame. That's the song. It's a shame. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to go back and re-listen to that. But he nailed that thing in one t- except he, he didn't do the vamp because Stevie would asked him not to, because he didn't want to blow out his voice until we had the rest of the song, right? But he couldn't imagine doing it better. So he did that and the group went out and I took four passes of backgrounds. Wow. Doing live. Uh, we had one microphone for the four singers and then one microphone up overhead feeding an echo chamber to, you know, to give it a room thing. Yeah, yeah. And then I did live bounces where I would I'd record them and then I would record them again with mixing the uh, previous take in with it. Oh, okay. And then we repeated the process on the other side because yeah, this was this was early 16 track. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I believe that one was had actually been originally an eight track. Okay. That had been transferred. So we had eight open tracks. And so so we did these stacked background vocals, which I'd never done before. And it, oh God, it sounds incredible. I mean, it's really cool. And of course, Stevie loved it. And we, uh, and that vocal, I mean, that session, oh my God. So uh, anyway, but what happened on what's going on is Marvin is supposed to be doing the originals. And I believe it was Obi, one of the four tops gave him this song that he hadn't been able to get Levi to go along with having the tops do, which was what's going on. <laughs> and as I understand the story, Marvin's wife heard the tape, the demo tape, and told him, Marvin, you got to do that song. <laughs> and so there's a story about him cutting a basic track at United Sound, except United Sound didn't have a 16 track. And the box, the tape box that I remember said originals on it and had some other songs on it that, I mean, it certainly appeared to be an original's Hitsville tape box. Yeah, yeah. And so I think he may have tried to cut his own version and failed. United. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that that was pretty bizarre because there was nothing unusual about about that box and the track and the whole thing. So. But anyway, the lesson was that Barry didn't want to put the song out because he couldn't picture Marvin's 16-year-old fan, you know, 16-year-old girls going for the political thing. Mm, yeah. It was too adult. It was, he, he, he thought that all he would do was alienate his current audience. Mm-hmm. And it may well have. <laughs> it's just a kid broke him into a whole new audience well yes yeah was what it did but um anyway barry was hesitant to do it but under marvin's contract they had to release a single on him every i guess it was once a year or something or he was out of his contract so it came down to a choice between releasing it or releasing him oh And so they finally decided, okay, well, we'll release it. And even if it doesn't do anything, 
great. It'll stay under the, you know, not enough people will see it and, you know, nobody will notice and we'll still have him under contract. Mm -hmm. Surprise, surprise, five weeks later, it's in the top 10. And they need an album and they don't have one. Wow. Wow. Interesting. So that album, the rest of that album was written and recorded and initially mixed in about 10 days. That's insane. I mean, there was no time. But it also meant, and here's the lesson, there was a very little left brain intellectual, what I've come to call bullshit. <laughs> yes. I mean, it was very right brain from the gut, what I'm feeling stuff. And he, about half of it was, because Marvin wasn't particularly a composer. So about half of it was written to lyrics from the night switchboard operator, a guy named James Nix. And the rest was from some other people and it was all thrown together and boom, mm. thrown out the door. And Marvin decided he wanted to add some keyboard parts. He was in California, he had the tapes sent to California, recorded the keyboard parts with my friend Larry Miles. And then the part of the story that apparently Larry actually denied at one point, but I don't know why he would have told me this if, if it hadn't happened. He made an appointment with Marvin to mix on a Sunday afternoon and he locked the studio door and mixed alone. Oh, wow. Basically bet his career on that mix. And yeah, oh, man. the rest is history. Yeah. It's crazy. It's it's. It's but, in a row that record, isn't it? You know, everything. But I gather, I gather he denied that story later on. I, I've told it to a few people. Hmm. But anyway, I've, it's in this new article, and, and to me, the the lesson was that what an old sage I met in, in California said: you can get more stinking from thinking than you can from drinking. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Love that. And I heard that and I went, yep, there's the lesson of that album. Fantastic. Oh, brilliant. Work fast. Work. You know. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I think that will be an important lesson for a huge amount of people listening to this. And uh, yeah. It's and uh Yeah, and there it was. It's history and it's I mean, it's Oh God, it's freaky that it's 50 years ago. <laughs> it is. <That's> scary. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that record is still as much part of the public consciousness as it ever has been. Oh, oh God. The great lesson of Motown for me. I mean, I grew up in a suburb where blacks and Jews were not allowed to own homes. Mm. So, yeah. This, Northern this is suburb of Detroit. I mean, racism was not a exclusively Southern thing. And it was actually more honest in the South. In the North, it was more cloaked. Mm -hmm. But uh, anyway, I, I grew up, my mom taught in this very wealthy school district. And so my dad was a carpenter and my mother was a elementary school teacher. And so we lived in this little two bedroom, one bath house on the edge of town. And uh, so I'm going to school with all these rich kids 
were headed to the Ivy League and the whole thing. And, mm -hmm. and I always liked hanging out with the really smart kids. So I always wanted to be the dumbest person in the room. That's another good piece of advice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, anyhow, I, I go into Motown and these guys are smarter than my friends who went to Harvard and Yale and MIT and their high school dropouts. And I'm going, holy cow, what is this? And I mean, the smartest person I met in my life is Stevie Wonder. I mean, he should have been a lawyer or a president. <laughs> I mean, I mean, he's uh, unbelievably brilliant. Mm -hmm. And yet he was, you know, people were not allowed to rise much above playing music and sports. And the sports was a new thing mm. in the 60s. I mean, it's, it's sick. Yeah. Yeah, it's a... And you, that and, and the police pulling people over and beating them up or shooting them or... I mean, that was my introduction to L.A. was getting pulled over by the police. My friend Larry, who mixed what's going on. Mm -hmm. First time I went to L.A., he picks me up at the airport and he's driving me to the studio where we're going to hang out for a while before going back to his apartment. And son of a gun, we get pulled over by the police for no reason. Really? And I'd seen that happen with my boss, Cal Harris. I've, I mean, I mean, if you're black, you have to be terrified of the police. And it turns out the history of armed police in America, I mean, the more I learn about the history of this stuff, the history of armed police in America was for basically catching slaves. Mm. I've, I've, I've read up on this. Yeah, I, and, I, yeah. You know, and they amended the Constitution to allow non-military to be armed for slave patrols. And that's how we got our gun laws. It's, I mean, it's just... The whole thing is unbelievable. It is. And it's, oh, but the other lesson in it is that, you know, the people like to say, oh, yeah, well, that's a Southern thing. And no, it's not a Southern thing. And people like to say it's an American thing. And no, it's not an American thing. I mean, I think it's a European thing. In fact, I think it's a Roman Empire thing. <laughs> Is my suspicion. You are, well, yes. <laughs> For some reason or other, they're scared to death of Africa. <laughs> and, and we're living with the consequences of that. Yeah, I I I think that might be quite accurate. <laughs> I mean, they're they're discovering stuff in Africa that supposedly the Greeks invented, only they're discovering it exists in Africa a thousand years earlier. Hello, <laughs> <laughs> you know it's like once you uh, you have to unwrap the politics from history. Yes, I mean, you're, you're a little lucky in England in that they started doing that before they did here. I was my one trip to Europe. I spent a week in London, mm -hmm. and I was staying in a little little uh i don't know what you call it. it was like a boarding house oh bed and breakfast bed and breakfast yeah well i didn't know about the breakfast until the day before i left <laughs> oh that's a shame <laughs> it's not an america not a u.s thing but anyway it was right around the corner from the british museum 
And so I went into the British Museum and I looked around and it was fascinating and I'm looking at all this stuff. And then all of a sudden it occurred to me, wait a minute, I've never read anything in a history book that isn't in here. Wow, yes. My history books were written in the British Museum. Wow. <laughs> so, so that was a that was a realization. <laughs> it's like holy cow. Yeah. Yes. And and of course, as the then all the various prejudices, if if you follow what happened with the royalty, and you follow what happened, because I, I learned in a thing about I've been studied at studied studied pandemics wanting to understand what was going on it turns out that the clergy was made up of the royalty who were not going to inherit property because they were not the firstborn okay I didn't know that yeah so the clergy was basically the upper class also mm-hmm that kind of makes sense. <laughs> and the clergy was run by the Romans. Mm -hmm. And the Romans had sold the right to rule when parts of the Roman Empire got occupied. They would make it, they'd cut a deal. Okay, we'll give you a divine right to rule if you'll let us continue with our church. Hmm. <laughs> and you know that's the ugly history of that and I, I met some Muslims and discovered that Islam was largely a revolt against the Roman takeover of Christianity hmm. <laughs> <And> <laughs> And my wife is Jewish, and we've just started going to a near, we just, this last Friday went to a synagogue. So I was in a synagogue for the first time in my life last Friday. <laughs> and we're sitting here, we're listening to this, and we're going, you know, this is exactly what Jesus was teaching. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> what is all this <laughs> so i wonder how much i mean I, I worry also because they i mean they they controlled the jews also at that time so i wonder how much of what is taught in judaism is laced with roman politics also yeah, it's, it's all very convoluted, isn't it? I mean, it's very complicated, and it, you have to... I mean, really, the China and so forth is about the only thing that's outside of that China, and then the, the various people who migrated to Western Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, we've got a lot to learn. There's yeah, so, I mean, there's an incredible amount we can learn. Mm -hmm. And uh, and the stuff they're discovering in Africa is just amazing. And hopefully, I mean, it's freaking out people who think they're going to lose power. But that's all it that's it isn't it it's a uh, it's it's fear all every yeah every... oh it's it's totally banking on fear mm. and uh oh a hilarious thing i saw the other day there's a commentator Mehdi hassan who is from london and there is a video of him debating Boris Johnson in college. Oh, really? Interesting. Ed's killing him. <laughs> I need to see this. <laughs> oh, my God, it was good. 
<laughs> is it on YouTube? It's, it's on NBC. Okay. And it may well be on Sky. I'll have a look. I need to see that. Because <laughs> they own Sky now. Comcast. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. That owns NBC. Well, they're all, I mean, there's wild stuff going on because the cable TV is all getting replaced by internet streaming. Yes. Yeah, it's all there. Uh, I mean, I, I don't watch sort of terrestrial telly anymore. I don't watch any normal TV. It's all streaming. Yeah. And yeah, we still like terrestrial and but we have the old AT&T streaming. Ah, right. Uh, yeah, I mean, we just get free thing called Freeview here where everybody gets the same. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm watching a bit of it now because we've got the uh, the European Football Championships, Soccer Championships is on at the yeah. minute. So I'm watching a lot of that, <laughs> which is the first time I've watched live TV in a long time. Yeah, my friend Ed is is sounding like he really wants to move to London. Oh, really? Yeah. He, this is drummer Ed. Well, he's been doing a, uh, is it, a London experimental ensemble group. Oh, all right. It's basically his roots are in free jazz, mm -hmm. but it's, you know, it's real wild improvised music. And it's it's a British group, and he's he was living there for a year or so, and really liked it. In fact, he was going to move right away if our previous president had been reelected. <laughs> I mean, the the jazz scene in London is is really happening at the minute. Um, yeah. I, I I studied jazz at college, and a lot of my friends moved down, and and uh, you know, and now in the contemporary jazz scene I, I don't do any jazz anymore but it's a i see i see what's happening and it's really flourishing yeah yeah well it, it's it's a shame it isn't happening here mm. yeah i mean it's exciting for london it, they just there's definitely a sound i mean not even just london i mean in leeds there's a great jazz scene where i am in manchester as well uh, you know england's so small that you can tour tour around and oh yeah trying to there's a big movement at the minute to try and de-londonify a lot of the particularly the jazz scene and you know try to encourage uh more publicity from bands around i mean i live in the north of england and, mm. and sort of just around around the, the rest of the island essentially yeah um, which i think is really good because there's a lot of great music happening out there that isn't getting the the publicity it deserves just because it's not london based yeah well he's done two or three albums with these guys and okay they've got a, a museum installation that they're doing oh cool and it's it's real interesting what did you say it was called london something ensemble let me make sure I get it right. My adventures in games. But I've been mastering all the stuff. Oh, great. And let's see. London Experimental Ensemble, it's called. Okay, I'll have it, I'll check it out. Fantastic. And their albums are Dark Before Dark, Orbit, and a couple child ballads things. Okay, I'll have a listen. And definitely very interesting. <laughs> um, I mean, that's, I mean, the thing we all had in common at Motown is we were all jazz fans. Yeah. I mean, you could totally break up a session by start talking about jazz <laughs> stop everybody i mean everybody loved it it was barry i mean barry's record store was a jazz record store oh really was it that's i didn't know that yeah and it was detroit's first exclusively jazz record store wow and it went bankrupt after a year <laughs> 
And that's part of why he was so afraid of Marvin's single. I see. That makes you sense. Know? Yeah. I mean, he had, he had watched that. I mean, he just, you know, this is not commercial. <laughs> and we were, and we were very late to the game with albums. I mean, we were thinking in terms of singles and mm -hmm. terms of multiple single strings of singles and the whole thing of the single promoting the artist. I mean, again, I suppose that 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 uh, goes against the jazz thing as well, because jazz is all was all albums. So all albums yeah. and and the album the listening album was largely invented by a guy named Norman Grant, who had a record label called Verve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the head of Verve became the head of Warner Brothers, Mo Austin. And I think he was actually the treasurer of Verve or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, this whole idea of a album with a cover that is a coffee table book, you know, fancy jacket, gatefold jacket, and that whole yeah, thing. Yeah. Well, that was all invented at Verve. Oh, cool. <laughs> and between that and Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass, which was another one with fancy cover and whole album, I mean, they completely changed the record industry. Mm. And then the, the Sergeant Peppers kind of put the seal on the whole thing. Yeah. Sorry about that. And uh, I mean, it changed completely. And Motown wasn't really, we weren't really on top of that. But Marvin stumbled into it. <laughs> and Stevie wound up in it. And and it, you know, it's like everything changed. Yeah. I mean, when you think of, of a, you know, Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye, you think of albums, you know, think of songs in the key of life. And I think of what's going on and don't, obviously there are specific songs that you associate with them, but certainly albums for sure. Yeah. Well, that yeah. was, that was a big change for mm. us. <laughs> it's a whole different thing. And the, uh, the other big change was that the albums were on a different group of radio stations that we didn't have that much contact with. And after I got to San Francisco, I found out that there were about five publicists that you had to have a relationship with. Oh. <laughs> and that was why Motown's attempts at rock never got, never really got anywhere. Okay. I mean, we had Rare Earth. You know, I just want to celebrate. But, yeah, yeah. Which I did. <laughs> yes. And that, and I did that by I got him off the headphones and into the control room with a handheld microphone to do the lead vocal. Oh, fantastic! Well, there you go. I mean, that's everything. Everything. You and that make, made it happen. But because I well, I'd heard him singing in the John, in the blue. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> they were going, wait a minute, that's way better than what he's doing in the studio. <laughs> so I thought, okay. And the producer went along with it and got him to sing. And they loved it so much that then they did the backgrounds on another, something clicked. Yeah, I think something fell off for, I don't know. Was, I don't know what it was. <laughs> Very strange. Where where exactly are you? What in the house or in the in the UK? In what northern? Oh, northern. So it's it's Leeds. It's called where I am. Ah. Uh -huh. Um. So if you go uh, 150 miles straight up from London, you'll get to Leeds. Is that near Edinburgh? It's it's midway between Edinburgh and London. Midway. Uh -huh. Yeah. So we're we're equidistant between the two here. A friend of mine wound up in Edinburgh. Yeah, oh, it's a beautiful place. I I love it up there. I've I've got a few friends who are from you know from there. It's great. Yeah, he. Yeah, he was real interesting. He. He started studying 
religious translations yeah. and started studying the Aramaic language, which was the spoken language of, of the entire Middle East mm-hmm. until post-Roman times. <laughs> and that's the, the original spoken stuff in, in the Bible was in Aramaic. Yes. And yeah. so he's been translating that stuff. Oh, interesting. And doing music. He did a a Lord's Prayer thing and and then he's been doing his own translations into English without going through the Greek and Latin. Okay, straight from Aramaic. Interesting. And it's very interesting. Yeah. Because you, when you, I mean, you got to peel the politics off. Well, there's so much interpretation in translation, isn't there? You know. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you you could say, well, he's doing an interpretation. Well, yes, he is. <laughs> but he's coming from a pretty liberal Western translation. And mm. anyway, he did that, and then he. He started an organization, and they've been doing workshops in Germany and oh, cool! A little bit in Russia, and and he started a whole thing in Edinburgh, and I think he teaches there. And oh, fantastic! Very, very, very interesting that yeah. he he that he performed a ceremony for my second marriage. Uh, I'm on my third now. <laughs> <laughs> So unfortunately, studio work and marriage don't work out that well. I, uh, I and for me, it's even more complicated by the whole racism thing because mm. I really need somebody that needed somebody that understood that totally understood that, and my present wife does. <laughs> She was part of the civil rights movement. No, oh, fantastic! Yeah, <laughs> and, and an original hippie. Hey, well, there you go. <laughs> Although she, I, I think she hates having it put that way. <laughs> but for me, it was like uh, moving to San Francisco was kind of to sort of become a hippie. Although mm-hmm. I wasn't ready for the drug scene. <laughs> It's a, it's something I've been, the San Francisco scene is something I've been learning about quite a lot uh, with, you know, um, Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane and this, all this kind of stuff. I've been listening a lot and reading a lot lately. Yeah, well, I got to know, know a bunch of them and, and it's, it's, it's interesting because it all started out as living room concerts. And uh, basically, the whole uh, beatnik thing moved from Greenwich Village to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And college kids who were fans of that moved to San Francisco. And they discovered that they could do a living room concert once a month and pay the rent for about 10 people, charge five bucks a head, and you'd get all the pot you could smoke. (laughs) (laughs) And that that was where the weird band names came from. Yes. (laughs) Because the bands were were like members of the same household. Mm -hmm. And the only thing more fun than that is it turns out the guy that started the Austin Tech Texas scene was a guy named Chet Helms mm-hmm. and then he he was running a coffee house in Austin his waitress was Janice Joplin wow David Freiberg went down to Mexico and started performing Pete Seeger's songs 
on the town square in, uh, oh, what, I can't think of a town just south of San Diego. Oh, I, I don't know, my And they got arrested and deported. And when they got deported, they got deported near Austin. And so they hitchhiked to Austin and they found this coffee house. And David told Chet about the whole San Francisco scene. And so Chet and Janice both moved to San Francisco. Interesting. That went back, went back with them. And then Janice's parents freaked out because she was leaving college. So she went back to Austin for a while. <laughs> and Chet started putting on early shows. And this was around the same time Bill Graham started the Fillmore shows. In fact, that's got an interesting story. The uh, uh, friend of mine, Jim Haney, was the stage manager for the San Francisco Mime Troupe. Okay. And Bill Graham was the manager. And they were doing free political concerts in the park. And, and wound up getting arrested for possession of marijuana. And Bill wanted to get him out of jail. So he went down to the musicians union, being a proper socialist, <laughs> went down to the musicians union and asked them to go along with doing some kind of a benefit concert, raise some money to get these guys legal representation. Well, what he didn't know was that the musicians union only spoke Italian <laughs> and was a leftover from the mafia in the thirties, you know, doing entertainment for the speakeasies. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, that was not a connection I was expecting you to make. Not a connection. And the mafia, the mafia has always loved the music industry because live shows are a great way to launder money. Mm -hmm. I, mean, yeah. I mean, you can just make up a figure. This many people came. Yeah. <laughs> and never mind the fact that it was only half that many. <laughs> and so that's that's why there's always been this intertwining of of crime and and live music and theater and all of that. Un, un, unfortunately, that crap exists. Yes. And uh, anyway, so that didn't work. So Jim had the idea of, well, hey, why don't you get some of these house bands together and have them do a concert? And then Jim and his set designer came up with a light show idea. And they did this whole thing and they got the bands. And the cheapest venue in San Francisco was the Fillmore Auditorium. Okay. That had been down to doing one or two gospel concerts a month. And it was in the Black District. So anyway, they rented rented the Fillmore and put on a show. It was wildly successful. And so Graham was originally going to be partners with Jim. And Graham uh, quit the mime troupe and set themselves up as a business doing these shows at the Fillmore. Oh, wow. That's a, it's cool to get a bit of insight into, I mean, all these albums that, you know, live at the Fillmore albums that we all sort of, know. yeah, yeah it's, it's amazing to know the, the sort of reason they exist. And then Helms was 
rented another ballroom and was doing an alternate thing. And Helms was into more of a nonprofit deal. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but anyway, uh, what a story. Yeah. And I heard I heard it from both David Freiberg and Chet Helms. So okay. reasonably inclined to believe it. <laughs> well, that and, makes sense. And, and Graham's partner. Mm. Um, yeah, amazing. I, I, and and then to look back on Motown and realize, okay, if we'd had connections with just one of these publicists the whole Detroit rock thing would have gone on. Yeah. But we just didn't know. Yeah, it's a, I mean, yeah. We had top 40 wired, but we didn't have the FM album rock mm. wired. And there we have it, the final part of my conversation with Bob Olson. I really do hope that you've enjoyed that. Uh, we chatted, for as, as often seems to be the case, a little while longer after I ended that interview for you guys. I mean, we got onto topics that were not relevant to the podcast, which is why I cut it there. Um, and it was a very long conversation. <laughs> um, okay, so next week, my guest is Ron Ryan. Uh, which is a name that you may not have heard before. Um, and it was a new one to me, to be honest, although I'd heard a lot of the songs that he was involved with working on. Um, he was the songwriter for the Dave Clark Five, among other 60s artists. Um, and you will no doubt have heard some of the stuff he's working on. Um, and uh, yeah, we've spoken on the phone numerous times um, in for this interview that you'll you'll get to hear. And I mean, he's brilliant. I would, I mean, I would uh, sort of loosely say that we're we're friends now. We've spoken outside of the podcast, and I I think he's absolutely brilliant. He's such an inspiring guy. Um, he's had a fairly raw deal in terms of songwriting, and he's got a really interesting story to tell. Um, and I I've loved getting to know him. So that's coming up next week, and I'm really excited to share that with you. Um, uh, again, if you'd like to support the podcast and buy a mug, you can do that at my website, all you need is drums.com. You can also get in contact with me there if you've got any guest suggestions. Um, I do act on the suggestions. In fact, in a few weeks' time, I have a guest coming on who was a suggestion. Um, and in fact, Ron Ryan was a suggestion, and somebody hooked us up together. So that was great. Um, and that just leaves me to say thank you to Joe Kane and David Henshaw for the music and the artwork. And I will speak to you next week. Goodbye!